Hi and welcome. This recording comes from Freedom Church Chester. If you want to hear more from us, go to newfrontierschester.org. Hi there, welcome to Freedom Church Chester this morning. This is part two on our little series called Mary's Song. My song will magnify the Lord. I rejoice in God my Savior, in the wonder of His favor. For He has done great things for me. He was mindful of His servant. Every age shall call me blessed. fish but an inquisitive fish but he was still a fish and he had been told that where he lived was was filled with with water but he, he couldn't really see it for himself you see if water was everywhere if it was all around him where was it the trouble was nobody could give him any answers so so one day he heard there was a an old fish who lived at the bottom of the ocean that could explain everything to him so he packed his bags and off he swam. He swam for quite some distance until eventually he reached the wise fish. Now Brian had much to talk about, many questions that needed answered, but eventually after he'd asked all the other questions, he got to the one that worried him most. What is water? The wise fish lay back, as only wise fish can. And he said, it's all around you. It, it gives us life. It brings us food. In fact, without it, we would die. But where is it? Brian interrupted. The white fish said, you're looking in all the wrong places. You can't see water. But you can see what it does. Have you noticed how seaweed moves? It can't move by itself. It's the water currents that causes it to wave. And, and look at that massive fish up there. What's holding it up? Water? Yes, water. 
Now, as Brian looked around, he wondered why he had not seen all of this before. And he sat speechless just for a moment, just looking. Last week, we left Mary halfway through her song of praise, and she is amazed at the wonder of God's mercy, not just for herself, but for everyone. How majestic is God in all of the earth? And, and Mary's song is evidence that she gets it. She sees things that, that many other people just don't seem to be able to comprehend. Even as a young woman, she understands that God is at work everywhere. That there's no place where his power nor his mercy cannot reach. Right to the very furthest depths of the ocean where, where light does not even get to, where plants and animals cannot exist. God's glory is there to the highest mountain. In fact, to the very ends of this universe, God's glory reaches there as well. He is majestic in all of the earth, in all of the heavens. But the question I think Mary wants to, us to ask ourselves, what is our view of God? What do we think of him? Who, who is he? For most people today, either they struggle to believe he exists at all, or even they, they seem to have this idea that he is essentially a passive God, a God who sits in heaven, who, who watches from a distance, but you see, Mary begs to differ. And she goes on in verse 51 in the second half of this, this song to tell us what God is like. Verse 51 says, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their throne but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So in these verses, verses 51 to 53, Mary just fills out her understanding of who God is. The tense that she uses here is present perfect, a tense often used by prophets to show what God was doing in their day or what he was going to do in the future was so certain that it would be accomplished, that it's spoken of as though it's already happened. See, Mary is completely confident in God to do all of these things. And the God who had been faithful in the past would be faithful to her in her future. You know, so often we view God, or our view of God, of who he is, or, or what he is like, is colored by our experiences. It's colored by our feelings, by, by just the situations that we get ourselves into. And we, we often allow these feelings just to shape what we think God is like. So we, then we end up jumping just from one idea to the other. So we think, you know what, my prayers haven't been answered, at least not in the way I expect them to be answered, so therefore God is somewhat distant and uncaring. Or perhaps I found wealth and fortune, so God 
must give people prosperity if they just follow my little formula. Surely it works for me, so therefore that's the way God must work. Or perhaps, you know what, these feelings of love I have for this for this other person, I mean, how could God possibly desire such, sorry, sorry, how could God possibly deny such deep desires? So therefore, I'm going to leave my spouse, I'm going to move in with them, and we justify our experience, and we justify the things we do because we feel like it, because of our situations, because of our circumstances. Listen, Mary chooses a different way, and I suggest a better way. She bases her current trust in God, her understanding of who God is, on how he has revealed himself in the past. And then she viewed her current experiences through the lens of God's revelation of himself in the Bible, not the other way around. So in verse 51, Mary talks about a God who performs mighty deeds with his arm. Now, there's a good chance that Mary is thinking back to some of the Old Testament stories, perhaps verses from the Bible, verses like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds? like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Or perhaps she's thinking of Isaiah 59 verse 1, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Listen, God is not a distant God. He's not far from us, but he is near, he is close, and he is working. And his intentions are clearly singled out by his mighty deeds that he has done. Every self-respecting Jew will know the story of the Exodus. They celebrate it every year at Passover. And they say, think, as Mary thinks about that, how God stretches out his mighty hand. He saves his people, rescues them from slavery. Is that what she's thinking about as she makes this statement? Perhaps it's Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Listen, there's the possibility that perhaps Mary is already beginning to ponder the connections here between the suffering servant that Isaiah promises in Isaiah chapter 53 and this baby that she is carrying. That moment, she has got no way of knowing the true extent of who Jesus will grow up to be. She does not understand that one day he will be the man who will perform many, many mighty miracles all of his own as he reveals himself, his true identity as the Son of God. In fact, as God himself become man, as he will come to rescue, to save his people, in fact, to save us from our sins. It's important that we stop and we examine our hearts regularly. 
How do you view your current situations, your feelings, perhaps the problems in your life? Are they through the lens of Scripture? Are you tempted to put it the other way around? You know what? This is it's not unusual to struggle with such things, but it is so liberating to remember who God truly is. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your situation that you're going through, and we need to learn just to view God through who He has revealed Himself to be in Scriptures. The reality for many of us is that we're seldom honest with ourselves. We never really stop to work out what's, what are we thinking deep down? What are the things that really drive and motivate us? And of course, this is a complicated question. It's very complex. And there are layers and motivations that, that just build us up, layers within our minds. And these, these layers are often layers that people really will struggle to, to get through. And most of us have built them up over many years either to protect ourselves or, or even just to keep people at a little bit of a distance so they don't come too close to us. But actually, we, we find it very difficult to strip away these layers to really reveal who we truly are, what lies beneath them. And if we're honest with ourselves, we often don't really want to know what lies deep down. In fact, we don't even want God to penetrate the depths of our hearts so we push him away and we, we keep him at a distance, or at least we try to. Now, it may surprise you that, that Mary suggests in verse 51 that pride is the problem that is deep down in our hearts, that actually damages our relationships, both with God, but also with one another as well. And I guess even the most self-condemning of people actually sort of loves themselves, maybe in a strange or warped way, but we, they, they love themselves in some way or other. And we, we like to think that the things that we do for others are done out of truly altruistic motives because we truly love people. But actually, if we strip away some of this, this um, personal spin, the truth is probably a lot more ugly because pride is the primary sin that defines every other sin. It is the instinct within us that wants us to be higher than we truly are, to actually push other people down, to even view ourselves as better than God himself. It was sin in the Garden of Eden that led Adam and Eve to seek equality with God rather than just to simply trust and to obey him. Pride says, I can do what I want, when I want, I am the one who's right here, and pride is such a master of disguise, even for Christians. So what lies beneath an act of kind generosity? Is it motivated by love and compassion or a desire to be noticed and to be praised by others? Or that piece of selfless Christian service, is it done out of a love for Jesus or is it just driven by a desire to feel good about myself? God opposes such deep-rooted pride because it's actually the very opposite to the fear of the Lord that Mary speaks about just a few sentences before this. And if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then pride is the end of it because pride, in pride we lose sight of the fundamental reality of this universe that God is God and that we, we are dust. 
that graciously and lovingly God has breathed life into our very souls. So what if we were to peel back those layers, if we were to break down those walls, if we were to, to, to lose your sense of unique identity, would Jesus be enough? Is he enough? Can you live as part of God's family in the fear of the Lord in his merciful care? And it starts with being honest with God, being honest with ourselves as well, but certainly being honest with God, talking to the Lord about the innermost thoughts, laying bare the struggles within your heart, telling him that you struggle with pride, inviting the Holy Spirit to show those ways in which you are directed or driven by pride, and then being totally assured that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ, that he is enough. And that baby who was born into this world, who grew to be a man, is the one who went to the cross and who died in your place for your sin, that you might have peace with God, that you could be forgiven, that you could know that your true identity is in Jesus Christ. And as you look at God, you see God lays bare his heart before you as he sent his son Jesus into this world as he died for you and for your sin. But Mary carries on in verse 52. She says, he has brought down rulers from their throne, but he has lifted up the humble. Or as James chapter 6 verse 4 puts it, God opposes the pride but he shows favor to the humble. And again, Mary is referring back to the Old Testament stories, to incidences, to people, when she talks about God lifting up the humble. And perhaps she's thinking of the, the young boy, David, who was chosen to be king over his older, more um, strapping brothers. Or maybe she's thinking of God's blessing to Hannah and to her son Samuel. Or could be many of the other prophets that were raised up by God from humble backgrounds to represent his people. But the principle is still the same. Be proud and keep and, and, and look to yourself and you make an enemy of God. And don't get me wrong. Pride people do get moments of success. But the Bible tells us that the proud will be scattered that they will cease to exist. So how much better to be humble and to look to God's eternal king that you may find favor, that you may be lifted up. And Mary gets this. She gets it, but she also understands that there is going to be one king and one kingdom that will rule over all. In fact, the one that is taking shape within her womb will one day rule over all the world. You know, Christmas is nearly on us. It sort of sneaked up this year, I think. It sort of seemed to have just uh, caught us up very, very quickly. So, so what's on your mind? Well, on my mind, of course, is food. It's just, just the way it goes. But I'm just looking forward to that moment, just, you know, that for just a time of relaxation, a little bit of, of food and a bit of feasting. 
Or maybe you're thinking about actually just the nightmare of preparing that food. It could go either way, I guess, on, on that one. But, but Mary's mind is also on food in the next line of her song of praise to God. She knows God has always fed his people from the fruitful garden of Eden through to the provision of his people in Joseph's Egypt, to the manna in the wilderness, to the promised land flowing with, with milk and honey, God has shown himself to be a generous God who provides for his people, not just for the great and the powerful, but for all of them. So it's perhaps not surprising that when Mary's bump becomes a man, that food is a big part of his life and teaching. He fed thousands of people in the wilderness. He feasted with sinners and outcasts. But the nourishment that he brings was not just to people's bodies, but to their souls as they listened to the sound of his words because Jesus' words touched their very hearts. And they still do. In fact, even the night before Jesus died, he revealed the ultimate truth about his life and his death in a remembrance meal that we still share today as we come together and take the bread and the wine in our communion meal. His body is spiritual food that we need. His blood is spiritual sustenance that, will, that we each require, or as Mary puts it, God fills the hungry with good things. That's our God. The God who fills the hungry with good things. But by contrast, Mary goes on, because actually the rich people, they don't get such a good press within the Gospels. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. But actually he went on to, in a rather, to, to, I guess, quite explicitly to explain the other side of the equation as well. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. And this principle is illustrated powerfully within the Gospels in stories like the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12 or in the Lazarus and the beggar in Luke chapter 16. And yet, as Jesus encounters rich people, what is interesting is the way that Jesus speaks to them and Jesus makes an appeal to them. See, he's not some sort of socialist revolutionary who is simply condemning the rich out of hand. And he appeals to people to turn, to repent, to be saved, to everyone, whether they're rich or they're poor. All of them need to come to Jesus. All of them need to put their trust in him. And listen, this morning, whatever your background, rich, poor, young, old, male, female, whatever your background is, you're invited to come to Jesus, to respond to the invitation of God's Son to put your hope and your trust in Him. One of the delightful things about Mary's song is the way in which she sort of flips from between this great themes of God's work of salvation in the world to, to this personal and intimate love and care that He shows to individuals. And we must never lose sight of the fact that our heavenly father just loves and cares. He's interested in every part of your life. So you can come to him with your problems, whether they're big or whether they're small. Listen, God is interested even in the little things, the things that, that concern you, things that you maybe think are even too trivial to bring to him. 
So is it wrong to pray, to pray for a parking space? Maybe you, got, maybe you haven't done your shopping yet. You're out this week and you come into Chester and the place is just bunged. Is it wrong to pray, Father, just provide a parking space for me? Is that wrong? What about, is it wrong to pray for the color of socks to wear in the morning? I spent three hours praying for these ones. You know, I think I made the right choice, but didn't really spend three hours. But, but is it wrong to pray for such trivial little things? Is it really wrong? I don't think so. I think God is interested in the little things of life. As long as we get things in a sense of perspective as well and remember, and in fact, never forget that there are also a lot more important things that we need to be praying about too and bringing to God and also remembering to come with thanksgiving for his providential care over both the big things in life and the little things. I hope you've seen from from Mary's song, that it's not some sort of shallow love ballad sung by an intense teenager, but it shows all the hallmarks of a woman who is deeply understanding of God and the scriptures. In fact, she understands the promises of God, and this is really where she, she brings things to, to a finish, and she mentions the name Abraham. Now, Abraham was so important to the nation of Israel. He was everything to them. They all descended from this one man who had met with God, who had journeyed with God, who had left his home and his country and come to a new land by faith. And the story of the Old Testament at one level is at least the story of how God had remained faithful to these promises ever since. Now, God made three promises to Abraham. The first he promised him land. Now, by Abraham's death, Abraham only actually owned one field in which he buried his wife, Sarah. But his descendants went on to occupy the entire promised land that God had promised to him. And even though they'd been often threatened and God had always helped his people until they had become victorious over their enemies. And even when they disobeyed and rebelled against God, in fact, even when they were taken off into exile far away from the land, it was only a temporary measure, a temporary state of affairs. Because eventually God brought them back. He rebuilt again the city of Jerusalem. I hope you remember the story, Nehemiah. Shouldn't be too far from our minds. Nehemiah and Ezra, they bring the, this nation back together as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem once again. The second promise that God gave to Abraham was the promise of offspring. Bearing in mind, they couldn't have children. This was a difficult one. But yet this childless couple had a son in their old age called Isaac, who had a son called Jacob. And these people became patriarchs of a great nation, so much so that by Mary's day, they had grown to such a number that they spread across the entire known world at that time. But perhaps the most significant promise of all was the promise God made to Abraham that all the people of this world would be blessed through him. Now, it's fair to say that Abraham was blessed during his lifetime, but it's by no means clear that he was actually a blessing to others. If you read the stories, you will read of his sin and his failure and certainly a few very awkward moments within his lifetime. And as the Bible retells the story of Israel, it's not worried about showing both the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly and these mixed blessings of this nation to other people, but this great 
promise was fulfilled. And this is where Mary ends her song. Do you remember the story? The angel came to her, verse 30, and the angel told her that the child that she was going to bear was the son of the Most High, a Savior, and that his kingdom would exist forever. It would never, never end. And can you begin to see the significance and the tantalizing connections between these ancient promises of God to Abraham and what is now taking place in this moment as this young girl just sings her praise to God as she's pregnant with this baby? Could this child really be the one who would bring blessing to the whole world? So Mary doesn't end her song with her own experience, not even with praise or thanksgiving. She ends with a reminder to herself, to Elizabeth, and to us that God's eternal promises are solid and sure because they are backed by a God who keeps his word and who will be true to himself forever. That's our God. Ultimately, God gets the glory. He deserves the glory, but ultimately, he gets the glory. So this Christmas time, remember the promises of God. Remember what he's done. And a God who is faithful in the past will be faithful in today, and he will be faithful in your future as well. He can be trusted. That's what Mary shouts clear. That's what she declares. She's going through this challenging time, but she knows that God is faithful, that his promises are sure, that they can be trusted. This Christmas time, Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the one who has brought blessing to our world. He's the one who will bring blessing to your life as you come to him by faith, as you give your life over to him. Listen, there's no other way to God other than through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus did everything that was necessary when he went to the cross, when he died in your place. He did it all for you. And all he asks is that, he give, that you give him your heart. That you come in obedience and faith to him. That you invite him into your life. That you allow him to be Lord over everything. So this Christmas time, keep Christ at the center. This New Year's, we come to another year, 2016. Keep Christ at the center. It's the only way to live. Follow his promises and live for him. Let's stand together. We pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. But Father, thank you that you're faithful now and forever. And Father, I want to pray, Lord, for those who, who I know of and others I don't, Lord, who, who are just in, in challenging, difficult times at this moment. Father, I want to pray for them that they would just know your peace this Christmas time. Father, I pray for those who need direction. Holy Spirit, just speak clearly into their hearts. Just lead them, we ask, in Jesus' name. 
Father, for those who are not well, Father, we want to pray, Lord, your healing hand upon their lives, Lord, that you would touch them, Lord, this Christmas, Lord, that they would know not just your peace, but, Lord, just healing, Lord, to their bodies and to their minds. We ask that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. But, Lord, we look to you. And we say again, as we've said in worship already, Lord, it's all about you, Lord Jesus. So we look to you, Lord, the, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And Father, I pray that we walk with you, Lord, as we go through into another year, as we celebrate your birth, but Lord, as we look to the future as well, that Lord, that we walk with you. Father, you keep us. Thank you that you have saved us. But Lord, also by your grace, you keep us as well. We give you glory. We give you honor. Amen. Amen.